Are you listening to this episode on Himalaya? If so, congratulations, because you're already using the best new podcast app out there. If you're not, you're missing out. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya is designed with you in mind and has a ton of cool features like curated, shareable playlists and collections made just for you. Aww. Along with personalized recommendations to help with content discovery. And the best part is, it's super easy to use! Exclamation point. It's definitely my favorite listening app, and I'm sure it'll be yours, too. Uh, so do yourself a favor, download Himalaya today, and be sure to follow Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries once you're there. What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 139 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for Wednesday, January, February, March, April, May, June, May, May 8th, <laughs> April, May, I almost said June, May June. 8th, 2019. Um, if you're hearing this now, uh, you, you will have heard the news that I have escaped from a Korean internment camp. <laughs> and I have made it safely back to uh, the shores of um, of uh, North America, and I'm being debriefed and deloused at this current time as you're uh. listening to this. Um, but I'm here with my co-host Mike. How you doing, Mike? Doing good, doing good. Turned thirty seven days ago. Congratulations! You're still alive. Yeah. You're not dead. Uh -huh. You're still upright, no. as the old people say. Like uh -huh. all the I. I've heard, you know, like old people greet each other, like, how are you doing there, Jim? Well, I'm still upright. <laughs> and it's like, ugh. Well, I mean, for me, it's, I, I, it's not a typical 30 because my brain is clearly like one. I'm definitely not 30 years old up, up, up inside, you know, my brain. It's just, it's just not, no. <laughs> so it's a part of uh, the Asperger's that I have. So I'm a little bit behind. I'm probably still in my 20s mentally compared to the rest of my body. So, I mean, it's is definitely it... one of those things where age is just a number. But like for me, it, 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 it's it's it is absolutely that. Well, that Mike, I mean, let's be frank here. You're a man. So I think all men are mentally still in their teenage years. Am I right, ladies? <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to do like a view, uh, the view kind of yeah. the, the talk yeah. kind of thing. Well, my husband, let me tell you, <laughs> he just cannot finish anything he starts. He Do you has, actually watch that show? No, no, but for some reason, that show is just like the just ubiquitous, like, waiting room for anything ever. Doctor's waiting room, waiting on your car to be serviced. I swear to God, it's always the view or the talk. And For me, when I'm waiting on cars and stuff, it's it's... ESPN, they have ESPN on, you know, and stuff like that. Well, you go to a you go to a sexist uh, mechanic who feels like just because it's a, a, a mechanic garage, there has to be a man oriented <laughs> thing on TV. <laughs> Honestly, when I go to the Hyundai dealership to get my car, my oil changed or whatever, which is something I was gonna fucking do this week, but I've been kicking that can down the road because oil is something you don't really. It's like, eh, it's just oil, whatever, you know, until your yeah. engine just stalls one day. <laughs> but no, they always have, um, every single time I go in there, they have, like, HGTV on. And it's oh, yeah. it's one of those shows where, like, 
it's something about I don't know exactly what the uh, hook of the show is, but the it's it's always like this young couple and they're looking to buy a house and there's house like, hunters something like that and there's like a team of people and they're like i'm pretty sure i can take this house and flip it and make it look awesome to fit their budget oh okay so it's like love it or list it or something something that like one, that, that it, there's, there's that one there's yeah. so many shows like that and these, these i know about it because my parents watched hgtv all the time yeah. and if we had cable my mom would be watching hgtv uh still so, um, House Hunters has actually been proven to be fake. Like, what it is, is, like, they've already found the house. They've already done all of that. And then they just do, they record, you know, the show. They decide to be on the show. And then they fake looking at these other houses. But really, they already made their decision on what house they're picking. Wow, that's, uh, that's, 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 that's unfortunate. The, the, so they're you, acting. You've... <laughs> yeah you you just let me behind the curtain of like my favorite show mike thanks you just ruined it for me i can never watch it the same again i will never be able to sit in that hyundai dealership lobby and watch that show the same again <laughs> <laughs> and allergies are kicking my ass um but yeah that's what's always on i don't know i don't know like if i just go in there <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. This is going to have to stop. Or we're going to already have an edit this close into the podcast, which I don't think has ever happened this early. It probably has. Let's let's be honest, it probably has. Um no, no I um that's good. That's good. You're 30, you didn't die and and you know, you're still here. Uh I'm doing I also got uh my grades back for this semester. Oh. And uh I actually did way better in that one class that I hate. I thought it wasn't going to do that well in. I got a B in that class. I don't oh, know how, good for but you. it worked out. I got A's in the other classes that I could get grades in, and then I passed the other class of so just pass or fail. I'm pretty proud of myself. I mean, I did all of this while working part time, so you know, you know, Mike. Time, really, in most people's houses, when you get bad grades, you get a spanking. But in my house, when you get good grades, you get a spanking. So. <laughs> So pull your pajama bottoms down because you're going to get a, some ass smackings for your good grades. Uh, okay. Mike, do you wear those pajamas, uh, the old school one with the butt flap on the back? Nope. Nope. I just wear uh, thin sweatpants or just sweatpants. That's really what I wear. I feel like I've asked, I feel like I ask you entirely too much, like what you wear and like, what like uh, what are you wearing for someone who's supposedly straight you know like i ask mike way too much about uh the stuff he wears like yeah. just these really homoerotic situations <laughs> oh what if we were swinging together or you know would you look into my eyes i've said weird things like that uh throughout the entire podcast um and and, and i don't know why i, just, I can't explain it's just one of those things those those pajamas though were fucking hilarious. The ones back in the old days with that with the butt flap. Yeah. What was that for? Who? What is that? So you can take a shit without having to take them off. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I don't. I don't want to think about that because then the flaps so hanging in the water. Probably what it is. It, it, it's it's for you know these people who were living in these uh, areas that were like really really cold, and so that that was enabled them to stay warm 
I guess, or something like that. And then, you know, also a bit of laziness, too. It's just like, I don't want to take my... They don't want to take their pants off, so it's just butt flap. But then the you know. flaps, you know, what hold, what keeps the flap from dangling in the water? Or do you sit on... I don't know. That's disgusting. Why am I even bringing this I think up? It get, I think it gets strapped or something down. I don't know. Or... That's, that's fucking gross. Anyway, um, so yeah, <laughs> this is a podcast called Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. We talk about the show Unsolved Mysteries sometimes. Uh, back in the day when this podcast first started out, I would have said we talk about it all the time, 100% of the time. But ladies and gentlemen... We scraped the bottom of that barrel. Uh, we've—I don't want to say we've talked about every unsolved mystery segment because we haven't. You know, there's probably a solid 200 segments that we have not covered, but they probably all kind of suck at this point. Um, not saying that we've done all the good ones, but we've done most of the good ones. So um, now, thanks to. Tom and Jerry's lawyer having us change our name, which I'm so thankful that we did. We can talk about all kinds of stuff that is, that uh, that is of a mysterious nature. And this week, per Mike, I don't know why he got the wild hair to talk about this. I mean, I don't have a problem with Loch Ness, but it was just a random suggestion. But uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about the Loch Ness Monster, which Unsolved Mysteries did do an episode but about... But it was, like, really short. It was, like, a t- half a segment, I think. It because was... it was the one that was also talking about the other uh, sea, sea creature. Yeah, it was mainly... Um, it was mainly, like... like Loch Ness uh, is, like, the A-list sea, mo- sea creature. And then, you know, Ogopogo or Champ are, like, the C-list sea creatures. A lot of those segments that dealt with the sea creatures was just it was literally like like testimonies from people who yeah. claim to have seen it. Mm-hmm. And, and you could tell in those ones that Robert Stack was just like not buying it. He was not buying. <laughs> yeah, he was doing he was this. doing the big Robert Downey Jr. eye roll uh, <laughs> <laughs> whenever he would be introducing the segment. But then again, mm. like I think I honestly think on some of these segments they had to like dangle with like like uh one of the grips stood on the catwalk above the set where stack was and he like had a fishing pole and he lowered down robert stack's check and just dangled it outside of the frame (laughs) and just kept dangling it up and down and like that that i think they had to do that sometimes to get him through some of these the intros to some of these segments (laughs) because like i know he's coming on there like what we have to talk about a magic rock Oh my god, I'm gonna need the check dangler for this intro. They had, like, that was a position at Unsolved Mysteries, the check dangler. He had to get up on the catwalk and lower the fish hook and have stacks check. And it wasn't just a normal check, it was those big publishers clearinghouse size checks. So it was just really big. So he, cause he's old, he couldn't see very well. So he could, like, actually see it. And, and that's. That's why at the end of some of the segments, when he gets done introducing the segment, that's why he has that big grin on his face after he gets done talking, because he he he's like hell yeah, that's like <laughs> twenty grand for me just introing a magic rock. <laughs> but yeah, um, the unsolved mystery segments, like I said, uh, they did one on Champ, they did one on Nessie, uh, Loch Ness monster. 
Yeah. And yeah, like I said, it was basically uh, just people recounting tales of seeing, you know, these these sea monsters. Uh, one guy caught the um, I think it was Champ. Mm-hmm. He caught Champ. And apparently Champ was a size where it could be fit into his boat. And uh, this this motherfucker, if this isn't every, like, anyone who's ever claimed to have caught a cryptid, if this isn't, like, how the story always goes, I don't know what it is. He's like, as I was driving my boat back with this, this rare sea creature in it, He's like, I looked into its eyes and saw that it was not going to make it back alive to the dock. And I, I really had to wrestle with myself in that moment. And I really had to, to question myself on a deep level. And finally, I decided to throw it back. Because he thought it was going to die. Uh-huh. And it's just like... <laughs> You know, yeah, of course, of course you did. Of course, man. Yeah, yeah. Of course, that's what happened. It was gonna die. So yeah, you threw it back in the water, right? It's not because you want to get on this well, show. Well, yeah. Well, well. Also, yeah, because that's that sounds pretty unbelievable. It sounds like he might have seen the news report about this actual uh, discovery. This one has always puzzled me, and there's not enough information to do like a full podcast on it. But it kind of ties into the whole Loch Ness Monster thing. A lot of people have theories that the Loch Ness Monster is a plesiosaur. Now, in 1977, a small Japanese fishing vessel, the Zuyo Maru, 32 feet long and weighing two tons, was trawling for mackerel off the coast of New Zealand when its nets dragged something very peculiar up from the deep. Pulling in the nets, the crew discovered a massive animal carcass. The carcass, which nobody could positively identify, but which looked remarkably like a plesiosaur. The dead and decaying creature was 32 feet long and weighed an estimated 4,000 pounds. The evidence was examined and tested by a group of Japanese marine scientists and the director of animal research at the National Science Museum of Japan. And the director reported, it seems that these animals are not extinct after all. It's impossible for only one to have survived. There must be a group. This find was so important that the Japanese honored it with a commemorative postage stamp as the scientific discovery of the year. The plesiosaur was even used as the official emblem for the 1977 National Exhibition, which celebrated 100 years of scientific discovery. Soon after the carcass became international news, though, Tissue samples produce evidence that the creature was actually a dead basking shark. Decomposing basking shark carcasses, which resembles a sea serpent or plesiosaur. So, it's interesting, but it's not really a, a plesiosaur. Yeah, you, you kind of have to bring that up when talking about this, because it's like those the famous photo with the crane uh, yeah. rope that's pulling up this mass of bone and flesh yeah. from the, but, the water. But, you know, I, I wanted to kind of have some suspense you know to kind of you know, some mystery and I, then boom. I, I like the artistic liberties go. they took with the uh plesiosaur on the on the postage stamp it's like yeah. well no we know exactly what it looks like you know the it, this is what it the, what the skeleton looked like and uh I, and then they gave it a little grin too if you look at the face uh the skeletal face it's like it's got mm-hmm. a little bit of a grin going on so it's like oh well, isn't that cute 
<laughs> I, I always did find that find that fascinating, though. The the photo, you know, that the, uh, mm. of this uh, unexplained monster. I mean, how many like, fucking shows on Fox did they air talking about this back in the '90s? I feel like. Well, yeah. I mean, even the, the sighting segment that I watched mentioned this, but like they didn't mention, you know, that it was a, you know, it was actually a shark. <laughs> you know what I loved about those shows in the 90s on Fox and shit? They'd always like tease it by we have new scientific evidence or new findings that suggest blah, blah. blah. And then when you watch the show, they're literally just like making some like post-production like the, some compu- computer bleeps and bloops. And then they they like focus in <laughs> on it. And they like do this like graphical uh, 3D analysis. They they basically just rendered a 3D model of the thing, and they're like, you know, this is how it would. Yeah, it's, they it's it was just a bunch of smoke and mirrors that wasn't scientific at all. Whoa! So it's like the face on Mars. <laughs> well, but they 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 patronized you even more on these like shows in the 90s because they they wouldn't even like they they would add all these like sound. Basically, like what Unsolved Mysteries did when Farina was hosting it, they added all these unneeded yeah. graphics and stupid, uh, you know, sound effects, and they they did the little, uh, you know, quick typing thing in the corner that looked like there was a bunch of yeah. code and and data mm-hmm. being happening right in real time in front of it. It's like, dude, this is all just like literally for dumb people, so they can go, well, see, <laughs> yeah. they got the what well, this show seems legitimate because they got all the 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 typing and the bleeps and the bloops uh-huh. and the graphics and all that, like. Yeah, I thought that shit was funny. You'll get a kick out of sightings then if you ever do decide to watch more episodes because there are some kind of stuff like that in that show. (laughs) This is like one of the most interesting things about the podcast, or not interesting, but just funny to me is, is Mike has been talking about sightings and us doing something on sightings literally since the beginning of the podcast and it has like never happened. Hey. I mentioned it, and I did watch a sighting segment on the on sea creatures. So technically, it's kind of happening right now. Oh well, touche, <laughs> touche the fuck out of me. We we live streamed the the one and only time we did a live stream, which we, we did. It was it, we we it, that was not very well prepared. At no, all. we like, did it yeah, at that, like that one a.m. or maybe eleven we were, your time. We were all tired. It would, didn't have anything to say. We just did it super late. No, it was I. I think it was funny, but we just did it so yeah. late at night, and like we didn't tell anyone that we were doing it. Like we just did it on our uncovering. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess YouTube the other thing channel. with sightings is I was waiting till you know we ran out of. We're getting close to that point, Josh, where we are running out of unsolved mysteries cases. So yeah, I know yeah. that's what I was just talking about in the beginning. <laughs> I'm well aware of that. <laughs> I don't understand how I never watched that show. Like you love that show. I don't show. get it either. I I I I never even heard about it growing up. It's all about the unexplained. It's like the unexplained segments on Unsolved Mysteries, but like every every case is unexplained. Sightings. It's D- not it's not in the same level production quality wise as Unsolved Mysteries, so you have to keep that in mind. <laughs> Um, I remember making fun of whoever the host was when, whenever we were doing the yeah, live stream. Yeah, I, I, th- I think you'll 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 grow to appreciate him a little bit more. I mean, not, not he's not in stacks level, but he's got an all right voice and he's, he's got a he's got a, a decent demeanor about him. Unlike some other hosts that are just a little bit you know too animated or trying too hard, or you know hosts like Dennis Farina who's just out of out of place. 
Oh, someone just commented on, uh, speaking of our YouTube channel. Yeah. Uh, someone commented on one of our podcast videos and under really? on the Tallman episode that we did way back when. And he goes, I lived in that house. I'm Chris. Ooh. Were, Ooh. Were you a Tallman? Ooh. <laughs> Dude, if that, if I'm telling you, Will, I get more people from the YouTube, like, that's how I met a lot of these people that uh, we've interviewed That's or whatever. That's why we should probably... But now we've done 130-something episodes, splitting those up. Well, that's what I would love to do ultimately. I would like to take our... Break up the, the episodes into segments instead of, like, the full episode and, you know, be like, you know... I don't know, Elvis's last night or whatever, and just make little... You could try to do that. I mean, like, just... you do have some free time, but, like, you don't have to, like, do them all at once. You know, just do a little bit yeah. here and there. It's just so much fucking work. It. Yeah. Anyway... I think all it would be, though, is just splitting it up, right? Just listening to it, fast-forwarding through the track, sp cut, split. Yeah, that's all time. Put a picture. That's all time. Are you going to do that? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's why we need to hire, we need to outsource some labor from like Micronesia or something to do it. From Scotland. You get two whole dollars. You do this. Outsource to Scotland. Yes. I think Scotland, the, the Scots would have a little bit more sense than that. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're going to be tackling the, uh, the Loch Ness Monster Wikipedia. So if uh, you want to know about Log Ness Monster but don't want to do a lot of research and don't feel like reading the Wikipedia, that's what this episode is for. <laughs> Doesn't do, I'm a, I, I am quite the salesman. I know. Yeah. So <clears throat> So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on uh, the history and then we're going to talk about briefly about a few instances of some searches of, of the Loch Ness Monster and then some of the explanations, some of which are just ridiculous, which is how it is for a lot of these uh, cryptozoological uh, sightings. You have a lot of these skeptics that are all like, oh, it was a, it was a sand crane. It wasn't Mothman. It was a sand crane. <laughs> oh, God. It... it, it, it. You know, when it stands up on its two legs it, it, with its wingspan, it can look it can look like up to six foot tall, and it's got red patches on its plumage that you could uh, mistake for glowing red. It's like no jackass, no. In, in fact, in fact, you're getting the whistle now. <laughs> Fucking skeptic. Uh, so, I guess I'll start since this is uh, my idea. So the earliest report of the monster in the vicinity of Loch Ness appears in the life of St. Columbia by Adaman in written in the 6th century AD. It's a long ass time ago. According to Adaman, writing about a century after the events described, Irish monk St. Columbia was staying in the land of the Picts when his companions with his companions when he encountered local residents burying a man at the river Ness. They explained the man was swimming in the river when he was attacked by a water beast, which mauled him and dragged him underwater. Although they tried to rescue him in a boat, he was dead. Columbia sent a follower, Luigi Makumin, 
to swim across the river. The beast approached him, but Columbia made the sign of a cross and said, Go no further. Do not touch the man. Go back at once. The creature stopped as if it had been pulled back with ropes and fled, and Columbia's men in the picks gave thanks for what they perceived as a miracle. Believers in the monster point to this story set in the river Ness rather than the lock itself as evidence for the creature's existence as early as the 6th century. Skeptics questioned the narrative's reliability, noting that water beast stories were extremely common in medieval uh, hiographies, and Adaman's tale probably recycles a common motif attached to a local landmark. According to skeptics, Adaman's story may be independent of the Loch Ness monster and became attached to it by believers seeking to bolster their claims. Ronald Binns considers this the most serious of various various alleged early sightings of the monster, but all the other claimed sightings before 1933 are dubious and do not prove a monster to tradition before that date. Christopher Carney uses a specific historical and cultural analysis of Adaman to separate Adaman's story about St. Columbia from the modern myth of the Loch Ness Monster, but finds an earlier culturally significant use of the Celtic water beast folklore along the way. In doing so, he discredits any strong connection between Kelpies, or water horses, and the modern media-augmented creation of the Loch Ness Monster, whatever the fuck that is. Now, um, yeah, this, this, uh, Adaman story... Yeah, it sounds it does sound like a typical water beast story from like the Middle Ages. I mean, it even has the whole thing where it's like, "Oh, the cross, go away, you devil monster." Mike, I like how you said a, tip- a, a typical water beast story from that time. Like you're like you're abreast of many various water beast stories from the sixth uh, century. I'm going off of what the guy what they're saying here. <laughs> Mike's like, I know all the water beast stories of the sixth century. I don't know all the water beast stories. You cannot surprise me anymore <laughs> with a water beast story I haven't heard from the sixth century. Now the fifth century, maybe, <laughs> maybe fifth. I will give you okay. fourth, but not sixth. <laughs> I know all the water beast stories from that century. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 how'd you like all those fucked up names right out of the gate? Right out of the yeah. gate, we got. Saint, not Columbia, but Columba. We have someone named Adamnan. You got someone. Oh, no, n- I said his name wrong the whole time. <laughs> yeah, and then where where is this one fucker at? Uh, Jean Makumin. Yeah, Luigin Makumin. Uh, it's like these people go in here. It's like they know they have prior knowledge that we're going to co- cover this, and they just go in and they edit Wikipedia and throw in all these nonsensical names that aren't real. Just to screw with us. <laughs> That's the most plausible explanation. Okay. So um, next we have D. McKenzie. In October 1871 or 1872, we don't really know when. D. McKenzie of Balnain reportedly saw an object resembling a log or an upturned boat, quote, wriggling and churning up the water. The object moved slowly at first, disappearing at a faster speed. Mackenzie sent his story in a letter to Rupert Gould in 1934, shortly after popular interest in the monster increased. Uh Uh-huh. So he only sent out his story after the monster, uh, the Loch Ness monster was in the news. Yeah, it sounds pretty suspicious. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, if it wasn't, 
if you didn't think that it was spectacular enough for you to even comment on before, but now all of a sudden it is, it's likely bullshit. Yeah. So, um, with the Loch Ness Monster, like, I, 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 there is a possibility that maybe way, way, way back in the past that there might have been a plesiosaur, some sort of uh, prehistoric creature. Um, it's not 100% likely, um, but I, I think there is, there's a slim chance that there actually might have been something that they were actually seeing. Uh, but then again, back that far... A lot of these people who had these sightings, they might have just seen something that wasn't was pretty uh, normal uh, compared to what a lot of people's knowledge are. All the knowledge is of what's in the ocean or in the water today. So back then, they might not have been as as knowledgeable. So they could have seen something that easily could have just been rather benign and normal, and just thought it was uh, a sea creature like a lot of people did i mean a lot of a lot of the sea serpent legends uh in the past come from an actual uh fish that's uh it's it's kind of like a snake it, it's kind of it's got it's got uh that kind of uh shape to it so a lot of people probably saw that fish and were like oh that that's a it's a sea creature it's a sea serpent yeah it's kind of hard for me to really put a lot of stock in these old tales yes because because (laughs) it's just like there the science was just not really there back then and the way it is now and and technology but i mean it is interesting though when you have prehistoric creatures uh like uh that were long considered extinct like the colisanth colaconth and they were discovered alive all these years later so there that that's what makes me think like okay there's there's a potential that there could be something like that is it likely no but i mean the water is pretty deep and especially when in the deep deep ocean i mean the ocean especially i think there are some uh sea creatures that we don't know about that are swimming around in the ocean i mean the ocean is so vast that like, we haven't even really touched the tip of it. We haven't even really, we, we haven't really gotten uh, close to uh, the depths of, of, of the ocean. I hear, I hear to... that shit starts getting weird. The deeper you go. Oh, it does. Yeah. yeah. And, and because the... it's like pitch black and there's all these uh, fish that uh, actually have something called bioluminescence. It, it's uh, enables them to glow in the dark. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah, because like you figure, no sun is reaching down to that point, and the pressure is so intense mm-hmm. that we've made submarines. You have to specially construct yeah. a submarine that can go a certain depth. Yeah, there was a no, not there was. There is a fish. It's called the vampire. It's actually a squid. It's called the vampire squid. And it's different than a lot of other squids because it has a bioluminescence, but it also, it's very pale and its blood is completely different than most other uh, fish because of the fact that it's, uh, well, I mean, other sea creatures 
that live in normal depths. <laughs> um, it, it's actually known as the vampire squid from hell <laughs> because uh, it's called the vampire rethus infernalis, aka the vampire squid from hell. It's a small cephalopod found throughout temperate and tropical oceans in extreme deep sea conditions. It can reach a maximum length around 30 centimeters. Uh, the gelatinous body varies in color from velvety jet black to pale reddish, depending on location and lighting conditions. The webbing of its skin connects its eight arms, each lined with rows of fleshy spines. The inner side of this cloak is black. Only the distal halves, farthest from the body, farthest from the body of the arms, have suckers. And yeah, it's almost entirely covered in light-producing organs called photophores capable of producing disorientating flashes of light, ranging in dur duration from fractions of a second to several minutes. And it can't really change its skin color, but to cope with the life in the suffocating depths, vampire squids have developed interesting adaptations. Of all deep-sea cephalopods, their mass-specific metabolic rate is the lowest, their blue blood's hemocyanin binds transports oxygen more efficiently than in other cephalopods. So, yeah, and they have a very weak muscular stru structure as well. So it's really interesting. Um, yeah, and also if highly agitated, it may eject a sticky cloud of bioluminescent mucus containing innumerable orbs of blue light from the arm tips. This luminous barrage, which may last nearly 10 minutes, would presumably serve to daze would-be predators, allow the vampire squid to disappear into the blackness without the need to swim far. Yeah, apparently uh, Cameron Crowe is one of the only people that uh, has gone the deepest in the ocean in his little solo sub-dive fucking film director. James Cameron? Uh-huh. Oh, did I say Cameron, Cameron Crowe? Crow. Oh, <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Different director. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, he went um, 35,756 mm -hmm. feet, which is 10,898 meters for our uh, listeners over yep. across the pond. It's pretty creepy looking squid. That was, I saw some kind of uh, image on the internet a long time ago. And it 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 uh, was showing stuff underwater. It was like an animated image. Yeah. And it said something like it showed an image, and it at the very bottom of the Mariana Trench, it showed a little door, and it said the door Cameron Crow found when he went deep sea James, diving. James Cameron. James, sorry, James Cameron. <laughs> the door James Cameron saw or noticed when he do yeah. dove to the bottom. Of the uh, of of the ocean or yep. whatever, and I haven't so, I haven't been able to find any information about this door hmm. from that picture. I don't know if it was a joke or what, but like, how fucking creepy would that be if you go to the bottom of the ocean and there's just this like door and it's like, whoa, what the fuck? That was probably fake, probably. But I love thinking about that shit. Like, if it was real, that'd be so cool. Like what? It's the door to hell. <laughs> it's where the aliens are chilling. 
So they're from hell now? So they're demons too? <laughs> well, according to uh, my uh, old school uh, Southern Baptist upbringing, uh, someone someone was saying one time that went to our church. They're fallen angels? Well, they were saying that, that the people who see UFOs are about to get demon possessed. Like when you see a UFO, that, <laughs> that means you're about to become possessed by a demon. I remember you sharing that before. Yeah. yeah. So then. back to the Loch Ness monster, but I mean, it was an interesting detour, at least. Yeah, it, it, it was. Is, it was it, on topic too, which is rare for us. Because there's a possibility that some of these uh, sea creatures, maybe even a plesiosaur, uh, the one that really I find would be really crazy is if there was a megalodon, you know, that giant shark, <laughs> like that. Actually, who knows? I think there is a possibility that there are giant squids, though. I think that, that, you know, especially in the deep, deep ocean. Some krakens. So, the next uh, sighting is by George Spicer. Apparently the guy who started it all. The modern interest in the monster was sparked by a sighting on July 2nd, 1933, when George Spicer and his wife saw a most extraordinary form of animal cross the road in front of their car. They described the creature as having a large body about four feet 1.2 meters high and 25 feet 8 meters long and a long wavy narrow neck slightly thicker than an elephant's trunk and as long as the 10 to 12 foot 3 to 4 meters width of the road they saw no limbs it lurched across the road towards the lock 20 yards away leaving a trail of broken undergrowth in its wake it's been claimed the sightings of the monster increased after a road was built along the lock in early 1933 bringing workers and tourists to the formerly formerly isolated area. However, Binns has described this as the myth of the Lonely Lock, as it was far from isolated before then due to the construction of the Caledonian Canal. In the 1930s, the existing road by the side of the lock was given a serious upgrade. Just possibly this work could have contributed to the legend, since there could have been tar barrels floating in the lock. Yeah, but I don't know about tar barrels... Growing limbs, well, not necessarily limbs, but growing something to be able to walk across the fucking road. Yeah, right. (laughs) Although that would be quite a sight. It's fucking walking tar barrels. They have like cartoon hands. Again, though, like the thing, the thing about it is, is like (laughs) if you're not really like a professional in the field, like okay. Let's just say, for instance, I'm out in some kind of Montana, Montana, Montana. <laughs> that's the how to roll today. That's the uh, that's the new the new state that we're adding. It's Montana. It's uh, instead of Frontera. It's it's instead of the Frontera prison prison. It's the Montana prison. <laughs> oh yeah, Frontera. Have we done the women's prison? Yeah, we have. Um, <laughs> I could just probably default by saying yes, we've done it. We've covered that case. <laughs> But, like, let's say I'm in, like, uh, the Montana, you know, wilderness. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a, a, a geographical or or kind of animal expert. I don't know shit, okay? I know how to write some music and uh, edit some video. That's that's all I really know how to do. Give me a guitar, I can entertain you, and I can say some stupid shit. That's, that's my skill set. So, if I'm in the wilderness... I really don't know what is supposed to be there and what is not supposed to be there. What sounds I'm supposed to hear 
What sounds I'm not supposed to hear? If I see something, you know, uh, what if I see something weird in the tree and it's dark? Oh my God, that was uh, some kind of an alien being when really it was just a grizzly bear up in the tree because they climb trees or something. And, you know, that's what they do when they're horny or something. I don't know. You know, like, point being is that, like, all these sightings, it's like, I don't know. You kind of you kind of almost need to be like an expert in that field of like marine biology or or whatever to really be able to say if what was seen was something abnormal or something that was explainable. That's why these like uh witness accounts don't do a whole lot for me cuz people tend to con- like they don't you know, they tend to confuse what they see for something else or, you know, I mean, they just. So basically you're, you're like the skeptic who's like, it's a sand crane. No, <laughs> no, no. The Mothman's different. That, that is a completely different situation. But, but why? Because, you know, they're talking about this thing, this large thing that's like like walking across the road, you know, and yes, it does sound crazy, but at no point did they say it had red glowing eyes and it stood, you know, I, I don't know. Oh, yeah, but I mean, I would also think the people who are living in Loch Ness would know their area pretty well. So it's not like these were people visiting the Loch Ness, visiting the Loch. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can know your area well and some weird shit can still happen that you've never... Yeah. Like, okay, perfect example. But that, that kind of goes into my point. Like, you, you were, I'm, I'm just kind of trying to understand what your point is because you were talking about how, well, you know, you, you, if I went to Montana, I don't know what's going on there. But, like, people, the people who probably saw the Loch Ness Monster, if it really was. Well, I just picked Montana as a random example. I'm saying I could be in the Florida Everglades at night or something and I could something weird could happen out there and I'd be like, Oh my God, yeah. that was skunk ape. But really there's an explanation for it, but I'm not an animal professional or a wilderness oh, yeah. professional. So I wouldn't know that. And I'm going to chalk it up to something supernatural. You know, if I'm that kind of person, well, yeah. that's what I, uh, that's the point that I'm but trying to But then again, I mean, you put yourself in, in these, these people's shoes. That's the norm, normal conclusion that you come up with. Like, I don't know what it is. I've never seen anything like it before. Well, no, and it's fine to say I don't know what something is, but to then but to then be like I don't know what it is, therefore it must be this Loch Ness thing that everyone's talking about. Or there but therefore George Spicer, he's the first one that that saw it and he called it the most extraordinary form of animal that he saw, so. Yeah, and yeah. I mean that's cool, but I'm just saying. Like for instance, like at my parents' house, like there's this this creature or or there's some kind of bird I would imagine. And if you're just at my you know my mom's house or whatever out in the woods and you're not used to being out there if you heard this thing it would freak you out because it goes ah! like it literally sounds just like that and it's you know it's some creature out uh, there bird sounds like a bird like it but it's 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 kind of a terrifying like whale i've heard it so many times it doesn't bother me but like Maybe that's where the banshee comes from. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Anyway, moving on, we got Hugh Gray. Uh, Hugh Gray's photograph taken near Foyers on November 12, uh, 1933, was the first photograph 
alleged to depict the monster. It was slightly blurred, and it has been noted that if one looks closely, the head of a dog can be seen. Gray has taken his Labrador for a walk that day, or had taken his Labrador for a walk that day, and is suspected that the photograph depicts his dog fetching a stick from the lock. Others have suggested the photo depicts an otter or a swan. The original negative was lost. However, in 1963, Maurice Burton came into, quote, possession of two lantern slides, contact positives from the original negative, end quote. And when projected on the screen, it revealed, quote, an otter rolling at the surface in characteristic fashion. <laughs> so, uh, it, it, translation, unfucking remarkable Might as well have gotten Rick rolled. (laughs) Got otter rolled, son. Yeah, otter rolled. (laughs) So, the next one is Arthur Grant. On January 5th, 1934, I don't like how Wikipedia does that. Just put, who goes on 5th, on 5 January? Nobody fucking says this, says the dates like that. Not in America, at least. On January 5th, 1934, motorcyclist Arthur Grant claimed to have nearly hit the creature while approaching the Aberachan near the northeastern end of the loch about 1 a.m. on a moonlit night. According to Grant, it had a small head attached to a long neck. The creature saw him and crossed the road back to the loch. Grant, a veterinary student, described it as a cross between a seal and a plesiosaur. He said he dismounted and followed it to the loch but only saw ripples. Grant produced a sketch of the creature, which was examined by zoologist Maurice Bart Burton, who stated it was consistent with the appearance and behavior of an otter. Regarding the long size of the creature reported by Grant, it has been suggested that this was a faulty observation due to poor light conditions. Paleontologist Darren Nash has suggested that Grant may have either seen an otter or a seal and exaggerated his sighting over time. Yeah, a seal. You can see a seal. I don't think the otter. I, I think you saw something bigger than that. It should be. It should like be noted. I, this Maurice Burton guy who keeps coming up is mm-hmm. a a uh, Loch Ness skeptic. Yeah, he's a. So if you saw an otter, like, why would you really be like? Well, I mean, yeah, you probably try to swerve away from it because you know, don't want to run over an otter. No, I don't want to run over any animal. I've run. I've. I have hit possums before, though. Maybe that's the karma that's happening with me right now. <laughs> the possum family. Na, 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 na. <laughs> you know, before the whole possum epidemic befell my my place of, of dwelling, I never knew how many damn possum videos existed online until people in our group like started running with that whole thing. I've mm-hmm. seen more fucking possum memes and yeah. videos and i ever wanted to know exist <laughs> it's ridiculous how much possum content yeah. there is out there all right so now we're getting to the famous surgeon's photograph of 1934 the surgeon's photograph is reportedly the first photo of the creature's head and neck and this is the famous photo that everyone has seen of the loch ness monster the tiny little black and white picture of the head and the body and blah, 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 blah. Supposedly, this was taken by Robert Kenneth Wilson, a London gynecologist. It was published in the Daily Mail on April 21st, 1934. Wilson's refusal to have his name associated with it led it to being known as the surgeon's photograph. 
According to Wilson, he was looking at the lock when he saw the monster. He grabbed his camera and he snapped four photos. Only two exposures came out clearly. The first reportedly shows a small head and back, and the second shows a similar head in a diving position. The first photo became well-known, and the second attracted little publicity because of its blurriness. For 60 years, the photo was considered evidence of the monster's existence, although skeptics, skeptics dismissed it as driftwood. An elephant, an otter, or a bird. The f- an elephant? <laughs> yeah, an ele- yeah, I know. It's kind of re... An elephant in, in Scotland? In the middle of a fucking lake? The photo's scale was controversial. It is often shown cropped, making the creature seem large and the ripples like waves, while the uncropped shot shows the other end of the lock and the monster in the center. The ripples in the photo were found to fit the size and pattern of small ripples, unlike large waves photographed up close. Analysis of the original image fostered further doubt. In 1993, the makers of the Discovery Communications documentary Loch Ness Discovered analyzed an uncropped image and found a white object visible in every version of the photo, implying that it was on the negative. It was believed to be the cause of the ripples, as if the object was being towed, although the possibility of a blemish on the negative could not be ruled out. An analysis of the full photograph indicated that the object was small, about 60 to 90 centimeters, which would be two to three foot long. Uh, Yeah, go ahead, Vine. So, since 1994, most agree that the photo was an elaborate hoax. And this is another reason why I wanted to do the Loch Ness Monster, because I've always thought that this particular uh, aspect of this case was very fascinating to me, is, is the whole hoax aspect of it. Because I'm, I'm, I was reading a, it's like a book about uh, mysteries of the unexplained, and I think it also talks about the hoax thing. And I remember when I first heard about that, I was like, whoa, you know, because like all these years reading all these books and all this other stuff. You know, never really heard anything about the hoax stuff, you know. So, and I've always found hoaxes to be interesting in their own way. You know, there are some really elaborate hoaxes out there. There's a book I would recommend uh, to anyone that's listening that's uh, somewhat interested in hoaxes. It's called uh, The Museum of Hoaxes. It's a really good book. Oh, it's awesome. Really entertaining, really, really fun to read. It's got a really great... A uh, list of all different types of hoaxes from all different types of uh, decades and time periods, and all over the country as well. <clears throat> I mean, even on unsolved mysteries, like the one where they talked about how the the lady was had the gold foil. Uh huh. Yeah. Or the log cabin fraud. Well, that's more of a fraud, but ho- yeah, hoax, hoaxes the, and fraud. The gold, are- the gold foil. Or uh, the infamous case of uh, the, what was it, the one in Florida? The UFOs? Oh, the Gulf Breeze. They were not real. Gulf Breeze, yeah. yeah. So, since 1994, most agreed that the photo was an elaborate hoax. It had been accused of being a fake in a December 7th, 1975 Sunday Telegraph article which fell into obscurity. Details of how the photo was taken were published in the 1990 book, 1999 book, Nessie, the surgeon's photograph exposed, which contains a facsimile 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 of the 1975 Sunday Telegraph article. 
The creature was reportedly a toy submarine built by Christian Sperling, the son of uh, son-in-law of Marmaduke Wetherill. What a name, Marmaduke. <laughs> That's a good one. Weather Wetherill had been publicly ridiculed by his employer, the Daily Mail, after he found Nessie footprints, which turned out to be a hoax. To get revenge on the mail, Wetherell pe- perpetrated his hoax with co-conspirator Sperling, a sculpture specialist, Ian Wetherell, his son, who bought the material for the fake, and Maurice Chambers, an insurance agent. The toy submarine was bought from F.W. Woolworths, and its head and neck were made from wood putty. After testing it in a local pond, the group went to Loch Ness, where Ian Wetherell took the photos to the Outslay Tea House. He took the photos near the Outslay Tea House. When they heard a water bailiff approaching, I guess apparently that was the thing, Duke Wetherell sank the model with his foot, and it is presumably still somewhere in Loch Ness. Chambers gave photographic plates to Wilson, a friend of his who enjoyed a good practical joke. Wilson br- brought the plates to Augustine's, an Inverness chemist, and gave them to George Morrison for development. He then sold the first photo to the Daily Mail, who then announced that the monster had been photographed. Little is known of the second photo. It is often ignored by researchers who believe its quality too poor and its differences from the first photo too great to warrant analysis. It shows a head similar to the first photo, with a more turbulent wave pattern, possibly taken at a different time and location in the lock. Some believe it to be an earlier, cruder attempt at a hoax. And others, including Roy Mackle and Maurice Burton, considered it a picture of a diving bird or otter, which Wilson mistook for the monster. According to Morrison, when the plates were developed, Wilson was uninterested in the second photo. He allowed Morrison to keep the negative, and the second photo was rediscovered years later. When asked about the second photo by the Ness Information Service newsletter, Sperling was vague, thought it might have been a piece of wood that they were trying out as a monster, but was not sure. So do you buy the fact that it's a hoax? Yes, completely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So up next we have Taylor Film. Um, on, yeah, I really hate how Wikipedia does this. On 29 May 1938, <laughs> South African tourist G.E. Taylor filmed something in the lock for three minutes on 16 millimeter color film. The film was obtained by popular science writer Maurice Burton, yet again, who did not show it to other researchers. A single frame was published in his 1961 book, The Elusive Monster. His analysis concluded it was a floating object, not an animal. You can continue. Then you got William Fraser. On August 15, 1938, William Fraser, chief constable of Inverness Shire, wrote a letter that the monster existed beyond doubt and expressed concern about a hunting party which had arrived with a custom-made harpoon gun determined to catch the monster, quote, dead or alive. He believed his power to protect the monster from the hunters was very doubtful. The letter was released by the National Archives of Scotland on April 27, 2010. Then you got sonar readings. In December 1954, sonar readings were taken by the fishing boat Rival 3, Its crew noted a large object keeping pace with the vessel at a depth of 479 feet. It was detected for 2,600 feet before contact was lost and regained. Previous sonar attempts were inconclusive or negative. Then you have Peter McNabb. Uh, This is in 1955. Peter McNabb, or McNabb. Uh, Peter McNabb, 
at Urquhart Castle on July 29, 1955, took a photograph that depicted two long black humps in the water. The photograph was not made public until it appeared in Constance White's 1957 book on the subject. On October 23rd of 1958, it was published by the Weekly Scotsman. Author Ronald Binns wrote that the phenomenon which McNabb photographed could easily be a wave effect resulting from three trawlers traveling closely together up the lock. Other researchers consider the photograph a hoax. Roy Mackle requested to use the photograph in his 1976 book. He received the original negative from McNabb, but discovered it differed from the photograph that appeared in White's book. The tree at the bottom left in White's was missing from the negative. It is suspected that the photograph was doctored by re-photographing a print. Now you got the Dinsdale film. Aeronautical engineer Tim Dinsdale filmed a hump which left a wake crossing Loch Ness in 1960. Dinsdale, who reportedly had the sighting on his final day of research, described it as reddish which, with a blotch on its side. He said that when he mounted his camera, the object began to move, and he shot 40 feet of film. According to Jarek, what is this? Jarek, J-A-R-I-C. This is uh, uh, the Defense Intelligence Fusion Center, uh, formerly known as Jarek, based in... Cambridgeshire. Okay, anyway, I just wanted to give you guys a context of what Jarek is. According to Jarek, the object was, quote, probably animate. Others were skeptical, saying that the hump cannot be ruled out as being a boat, and when the contrast is increased, a man in a boat can be seen. In 1993, Discovery Communications produced a documentary, Loch Ness Discovered, with a digital enhancement of the Dinsdale film, a person who enhanced the film noticed a shadow in the negative, which was not obvious in the developed film. By enhancing and overlaying frames, he found what appeared to be the rear body of a creature underwater. Quote, Before I saw the film, I thought the Loch Ness Monster was a load of rubbish. Having done the enhancement, I'm not so sure. So the film is actually on YouTube. Like the actual film, not the enhanced whatever one. Okay, let's say we're, I'm watching it now. Okay, I just see black and white, uh, what appears to be ocean with some rock formation in the background. See something in the water. Okay, it's it, the, the, the video is so bad you can't even tell what <laughs> you're even looking at. Like, who's to say that's not... Okay, I just saw a bird fly. <laughs> Dude, that is so like like that image is so grainy and unclear. <laughs> that could literally be anything. Yeah. Look up the Tim Dinsdale Loch Ness footage and and see if you guys can make heads or tails of that. That doesn't look like anything to me. I'm trying to find the the uh, you know right. the Loch Ness. Well, why, discovery while you video, do that, I'll I'll read. I, I can't seem to find that. I'll read about the Loch Ness Muppet. On May 21st, <laughs> yeah, the names are getting less dignified as we go on. On May 21st, 1977, Anthony Doc Shields, camping next to Urquhart Castle, took some, quote, some of the clearest pictures of the monster until this day. Shiles, a, magic, a magician and psychic, claimed to have summoned the animal out of the water. He later described it as, quote, elephant squid, claiming the long neck, 
shown in the photograph is actually the squid's trunk and that a white spot at the base of the neck is its eye. Due to the lack of ripples, it has been declared a, a hoax by a number of people and received its name because it's staged look. I need to find these photos. <laughs> then, all, like 30 years, Lock this Muppet. Thir 30 years <laughs> later, in 2007, we have the Holmes video. On May 26, 2007, a 55-year-old laboratory technician, Gordon Holmes, videotaped what he said was, quote, this jet black thing about 46 feet long and moving fairly fast in the water. Adrian Shine, a marine biologist at the Loch Ness 2000 Center in Drumnadochit, described the footage as among the best he had ever seen. BBC Scotland broadcasts a video on May 29, 2007. STV News North Tonight aired the footage on May 28, 2007 and interviewed Holmes. Shine was also interviewed and suggested that the footage was an otter, seal, or water bird. Then we got the sonar image in 2011. On August 24, 2011, Loch Ness boat captain Marcus Atkinson photographed a sonar image of a, a 4.9-foot unidentified object which seemed to follow his boat for two minutes at a depth of 75 feet and ruled out the possibility of small fish or seal. In April 2012, a scientist from the National Oceanography Center said that the image is a bloom of algae and zooplankton. So that's the picture of the Muppet one. Like, yeah, that's the infamous... I remember seeing that one in, in books, too. All these are just... They're so heavily cropped, too. Like, that's such a small space of water. There's no... There's no real, like, reference point for, like where it could even be at. I mean, when you crop an image close... Well, I mean, just look, this one's not even cropped, and you can tell. It's just it's just not real. I mean, look, it, it's it's an inflatable puppet or something. Or yeah, something that looks... That, 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 that looks very fake. It looks like... Go looks like it looks like Godzilla's cock. <laughs> 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 looks like Godzilla's just having himself a soak, and he got a woody. Uh... Oh, man. <laughs> so now we got the George Edwards photograph. On August 3rd, 2012, skipper George Edwards claimed that a photo he took on November 2nd, 2011 shows Nessie. Edwards claims to have searched for the monster for 26 years and reportedly spent 60 hours per week on the lock aboard his boat. That's what we call a virgin. Nessie Hunter uh, 4 was the name of his boat, by the way. Uh, taking tours. What happened to Nessie Hunter 1 through 3? <laughs> that was good, Mike. So he would apparently take tours for rides on the lake. So, he, oh, so this was like a whole business for him. Never mind. Edward said, quote, In my opinion, it probably looks kind of like a manatee, but not a mammal. When people say, when people see three humps, they're probably just seeing three separate monsters. Oh, okay. So they're they're just seeing three Loch Ness monsters instead of one with three humps. Okay, that <laughs> makes more sense. Other researchers have questioned the photograph's authenticity, and Loch Ness researcher Steve Feltham suggested that the object in the water is a fiberglass hump used in a National Geographic Channel documentary in which Edwards had participated. 
Researchers Dick Rayner had questioned Edward's claim of discovering a deeper bottom of Loch Ness, which Rayner calls Edward's Deep. He found inconsistencies between Edward's claims for the location and conditions of the photograph and the actual location and weather conditions that day. According to Rayner, Edwards told him he had faked a photograph in 1986, which he claimed was genuine in the Nat Geo documentary. Although Edwards admitted in October 2013 that his 2011 photo was a hoax, he insisted that the 1986 photo was genuine. So, bunch of yep. non-credible people so far. So this this particular uh, website right here, just like get it real quick. Uh, it has some more pictures and stuff. Um, so you have you scroll down, so you get to the there's that one photo that the uh, Hugh Gray photo. It has a Hugh Gray photo. You can tell it's just a dog. It's a dog. I don't know why that link that you just sent isn't popping up on here. I think you might have just resent. Hold on. Dead air. This is called dead air. Oh, okay. Now, nah. okay. Now nah, I see it. All right. Now what? What am I looking at here? A lot of words on this screen. You scroll down to to uh, the first actual photograph, black and white one. Okay, that's that's the uh, the Hugh Gray photo. It is clearly just a dog. Oh yeah, <laughs> they even draw the face on the damn thing and like a Microsoft Paint. They outline the dog's face. <laughs> oh my god, that is hilarious. Jesus Christ. The lengths that yeah. people are willing to go through, man. Ugh. And then and then uh he shows a picture of Tim Din Tim Dinsdale, who looks like Bill Murray from Caddyshack. <laughs> oh yeah, he kinda does. <laughs> they have this other photo. This is a pretty interesting photo. All right, well, while you look through that, I'm going to finish this shit. Okay. David Elder video, 2013. On August 20... Why is this always... Everything happens in August, dude. This is crazy. Like, every... The sonar image, George Edwards photo, David Elder video, like... Uh -huh. That's insane. This always happens in August. On August 27, 2013, Taurus David... Well, think about it, it's the summer. Yeah, well, whatever. I mean, if the, if there was a sea monster or sea creature, it'd probably only be coming out of the water in the summer, I would think. Yeah, it's just kind of weird that they're all August. Anyway, uh, before I was rudely interrupted, on August 27th, 2013, tourist David Elder presented a five-minute video of a, quote, mysterious wave in the lock. According to Elder, the wave was produced by a 15-foot, quote, solid black object just under the surface of the water. Elder, 50 from East Kilbride, South Lan Lanarkshire, was taking a picture of a swan at the Fort Augustus Pier on the southwestern end of the lock when he captured the movement. He said, quote, The water was very still at the time, and there were no ripples coming off the wave and no other activity on the water. Skeptics suggest that the wave may have been caused by a wind gust. Now we have some kind of interesting ones here. 
Apple Maps photograph 2014. On April 19th, 2014, it was reported that a satellite image on Apple Maps showed what appeared to be a large creature just below the surface of Loch Ness. At the locks far north, the image appeared to be about 30 meters, which is 98 foot long. Possible explanations were the wake of a boat, seal caused ripples or floating wood. And then finally, we have the Google Street View of 2017. Well, I mean, with the Apple one, I actually sent you a link that actually has the photo. Okay. So you're more on top of things than me, apparently. And folks, we might put, you know, links to these photos and stuff like that in the description so you can follow along. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah. What does it look like to you? Again, a shark? Again, that could a whale? be anything. A wake? Yeah, could be a wake. Could be some kind of a... I don't know. It looks, it looks less like a plesiosaur or something... And more like a shark to me. A shark or with a whale. With, with a a mysteriously penis shaped head. <laughs> really? It, it's really really going all in on the phallic Im- phallic image. Yeah, well I can't help it, too. man. This thing looks like a a underwater dick. Uh, <laughs> like a human one though, not not a Godzilla one. Uh so Google commemorated <laughs> the 81st anniversary of the surgeon's photograph with a Google Doodle and added a new feature to Google Street View with which users can explore the lock above and below the water. Google reportedly spent a week at Loch Ness collecting imagery with a Street View Trekker camera, attaching it to a boat to photograph above the surface and collaborating with members of the Catlin Sea View Survey to photograph underwater. But, okay, so I guess that's not yeah. actually it. So, there were also a, a number of searches. Like, there was one in Edward uh, in 1934. Some guy named Edward Mountain. He read uh, some book by Rupert Gold called The Loch Ness Monster and Others. So, he decided to finance a search. 20 men with binoculars and cameras. They showed up at the lock and... Futzed around uh, for five weeks. Although 21 photographs were taken, none were considered conclusive. Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau. There actually was a, a bureau. A Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau. It was a UK-based society formed in 1962 by Norman Collins, uh, RSR Fitter, politician David James, Peter Scott, and Constance White. The study Loch Ness to identify the creature as a Loch Ness monster and determined and to determine causes of reports of it. The society's name was later shortened to the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau and it disbanded in 1972. Apparently, according to the Bureau's 1969 annual report, it had 1,030 members, of whom 588 were in the UK. There was also a sonar study that occurred in 1967 to 1968 uh, by, Dr. by Gordon Tucker, a chair of the Department of Electronic and Electrical Engineering at the University of Birmingham. Didn't really find that much. Robert Reins' studies from 1972, 1975, 2001, and 2008. Um, more of... Uh, 
sonar readings and stuff like that and didn't really find anything significant. Um, Rhines, though, he believes that the creature may become extinct, citing the lack of significant sonar readings and a decline in eyewitness accounts. He undertook a final expedition in 2008 using sonar and an underwater camera in an attempt to find a carcass. Ryans believe that the animals may have failed to adapt to temperature changes resulting from global warming. Well, that's a possibility. Like, it's kind of like with Mothman. It's it's just dead. You know, maybe it was out there, but by now it's dead. That's how I feel about the whole Bigfoot sightings and all yeah. that. Like, oh, mm-hmm. well, why aren't we still seeing them? Blah, blah, blah. I think they've all, like, died. Whatever. Uh, all those creatures and shit. Like, yeah, I mean, there yeah. has to be more than one. Mm-hmm. And I think they just died. So this is also the guy who apparently took a photo of a flipper. But according to a team member, Charles Wyckoff, the photos were retouched to superimpose the flipper. The original enhancement showed a considerably less distinct object. No one is sure how the originals were altered. Uh, then there was other sonar contact. In 2001, his Academy of Applied Science videotaped a V-shaped wake traversing still water on a calm day. The Academy also videotaped an object on the floor of the lock resembling a carcass and found marine clamshells and a fungus-like organism not normally found in freshwater locks, a suggested connection to the sea and a possible entry for the creature. Uh, Then there was Operation Deep Scan, which uh, was conducted in 1987. 24 boats equipped with echo sounder equipment were deployed across the width of the lock and simultaneously sent acoustic waves. According to BBC News, the scientists had made sonar contact with an unidentified object of unusual size and strength. The researchers returned, rescanning the area. Analysis of the echo sounder images seemed to indicate debris at the bottom of the lock, although there was motion in three of the pictures. Adrian Shine speculated, based on size, that they might be seals which had entered the lock. Sonar expert Daryl Lawrence, founder of Lawrence Electronics, donated a number of echo sounder units used in the operation. After examining a sonar return indicating a large moving object at the depth of 180 meters, 590 feet near Urquhart Bay, Lawrence said, there's something there here we don't understand, and there's something here that's larger than a fish, maybe some species that hasn't been detected before. I don't know. Which is a good way to put it. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, In 2003, the BBC sponsored a search for the lock called Searching for the Loch Ness Monster, using 600 sonar beams and satellite tracking. The search had sufficient resolution to identify a small buoy. <laughs> no identity animal of substantial size was found, and despite the reported hopes, the scientists involved admitted that this proved the Loch Ness Monster was a myth. Uh, searching for the Loch Ness Monster aired on BBC One. Sounds like uh, the BBC One's Al Capone's Vault. That's what it sounds like to me. Just a total flop. All this marketing, all this money. People who are like, oh, the Loch Ness Monster. You're going to watch the Loch Ness Monster show on BBC. And then uh, all we found was a buoy. <laughs> yeah, but that, those there were shows like that all the time back then that that did shit like that. I felt like, you know, like it was like this big tease and it just all for nothing. You know, and then apparently there's an international team consisting of researchers from the universities of Otago, Copenhagen, Hull, and the Highlands, and Islands that did a DNA survey of the lake in June of 2018, looking for unusual species. The results are expected in 2019. 
Oh, very nice. So yeah, going on that topic, the ones where it's like, oh, it's going to be this big deal. You know, these big specials. I mean, Geraldo did a lot of them. He was the one who hosted the uh, Al Capone's Vault one. It's this big deal, and they didn't find anything. What were they thinking and they were going to find in there? I, I don't know. <laughs> Jimmy Hoffa, <laughs> gold. <laughs> Jeez. All right, well, uh, that's about all the time I got. Uh, I got to get ready for my trivia gig. Okay. I got to go host, so I feel like uh, I feel like this was... If you care about Loch Ness Monster at all, this might have done something for you. If not, just hang in there. There'll be something There'll be something there for you next week, I'm sure. Um, we have a Patreon account. You can join that and get the podcast early. That's patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. Uh, we have a Facebook group that you can join. That's pretty freaking awesome and very interactive and friendly and accepting and inclusive and all these other buzzwords that people are using nowadays. Um, that is go to Facebook and search uncovering unexplained mysteries in the search. And then it'll pop up in the group section and, uh, jump on that. And then finally, if you want more of me and Mike and what we do separately in our spare time, uh, you can find Mike at youtube.com slash OCP communications. He's a movie guy. He talks about uh, cinematic adventures. Mike, what was the last movie you talked about? Last movie I talked about um, was the same one I talked about last time, was The Ambulance. Um, the last video I did was a little unboxing video. I unboxed a uh, gift from a uh, subscriber and friend of mine who sent me a bunch of stuff. So I did an unboxing there. Um, the last movie I saw was a film called Body Parts. Which is which is an incredibly underrated movie. It's uh, deals with this man who gets in this horrific car accident and loses his arm, and then he gets an arm transplant. He gets a, he gets a new arm, but it's an arm from a criminal, from a guy who's just involved with multiple crimes and murders and just an all around bad guy. And so the film then goes with this, uh, with the with the idea, the concept of like where is evil? Where does evil reside? Does it reside in uh, the the mind, or does it reside in the flesh? And so it, it it covers that aspect. And there's uh some twists and turns with the plot and everything. And there are other people who have the limbs from this killer, and they're also experiencing the same sort of nightmares and involuntary moments where they're not even in control of their limbs so yeah it's it's a it's a, a pretty bloody film too and uh quick fast-paced great movie highly recommend it right on right on uh if you want to subscribe to my youtube channel it's youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts uh, i do all kinds of videos um i decided that i'm mainly going to start focusing on music related videos um yeah. and like you know, every now and then I'll do a taste test video or something like that, but uh, I, I think I've officially decided... You're done with the gaming yeah, stuff? Yeah, <laughs> I'm done with the gaming stuff, I think, because I I love video games, but, like, I'm not, like, to truly be competitive in the gaming sphere on YouTube, you have to, like, eat, sleep, and breathe video games. Like, you have to be live streaming, you gotta be... 
uh you just got to be so on top of it unless you're like one of these guys who was lucky enough to like get in early and you know you can just pop videos out you know whenever you feel like on whatever you feel like it but you already have that established fan base that's going to be there for whatever you come out with i don't have an established fan base but i feel like i should stick to stuff that i actually uh am passionate about and that i feel like i know a lot about so that's what i do so (laughs) yeah and i know a lot about music and i'm very passionate about music so yeah, I think from now on, I'm going to stick to more music-related videos, uh, TV shows, maybe movies, probably not as much with the movies, but definitely like TV shows and music and just kind of social commentary kind of videos. Yeah. Um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on other TV shows, you know, TV shows you like. Yeah, uh, definitely going to still do like the informative videos. Like uh, anytime I do a product review, that always gets really good views. The taste test videos usually get good views, except for oddly enough, the one we did where we taste tested Asian food got like really shit views. But I think that's because we didn't target it's generic. We didn't target a specific country. We just said Asian food. You know, we should have said like Japanese food or Chinese or whatever. We should have targeted. Yeah, uh, that would be like you know we try European candy. Like well. Because, like, your main audience from those taste test videos is literally going to be people from that country wanting to see how Americans react to it. Well, it's not just, not just you know, because there's Americans who like to watch those videos, too. Yeah, but, like, I'm telling you, like, for instance, on our Swedish candy taste uh-huh. test video, it's mainly Swedish people commenting. Yeah. On my yeah. German taste test video, it's mainly Germans comment. you know, like, Canadian. In German? Uh, yeah, <laughs> sometimes, yeah, because I did that whole video in German. So if you want to hear me speak in German for an entire 10 minutes and 41 seconds, you can go to my channel for that. But yeah, I have, I have a bunch of different videos on there. Um, uh, my last one I did was still the whole Woodstock Festival being canceled thing and how I don't really think it's that big of a surprise because the lineup sucked. And I mean... Surprised you haven't done a video on Beavis and Butthead or anything like that. <laughs> oh, what, talking about the show in general? Yeah. Yeah, I could do that. I mean, that's an idea for sure. Um, I I just don't know what the interest would be in that. Uh, that show's not really anywhere near the popularity it was. When they tried to bring it back, it, it, it went for like... I, you know a few episodes and then they canceled it again so i mean people just clearly weren't weren't nostalgia weren't nostalgic enough for the show to i think it was doing okay it's just uh there were some uh creative differences between mtv and mike judge which is crazy well you got to figure by by the time they brought it back that there was probably a whole new set of people running mtv and they were probably all like kids when beavis and butthead came out and probably don't even like understand the cultural significance and that you know i can only imagine the kind of like douche nozzles that would run a a channel like mtv i imagine they're very similar people that would run like buzzfeed or something well yeah now yeah that's what i'm saying mtv is 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 exactly what it was fighting against in the 90s yep pretty much But anyway, that's all the time we got for this week. I hope you guys have a good rest of your week and see you next time. Goodbye. See ya.
Ladies and gentlemen, my new album, Hex, is finally available on all streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Music, and anywhere else where music can be found. Also, we still have our special edition physical CD available at bandcamp.com. Check the link in the description of this podcast. Now enjoy some of the samples from my new CD. Technically, I don't care about the box office either, but I'm talking about it from the perspective of the studios. It makes no sense to keep greenlighting these remakes. They don't make any money. They don't? They make no money. I thought they're, I thought uh, that's why they were doing the remakes, because they made money. They don't make money. They're doing reboots of franchises. Straight-up remakes with gender-swapped leads... Or uh, just a remake of a... F- they don't make any money. The last one that made any money was The Karate Kid, but that technically was more of a reboot. More than anything. Everything else has been a flop. Ghostbusters, Robocop, Total Recall, Point Break. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, that, I guess those all did bomb. Yeah. Like a lead balloon. And so, and this guy's like, oh, uh, answer me. How many truly great comedies do we get every year? Uh, the comedy genre is in the same boat as remakes, stale and full of unoriginality. unoriginality. Uh, how many truly great action movies? I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of great action movies lately. Dread, John Wick 1 and 2, Mission Impossible 5 and 6. I could, I could come up with a bigger list of great action movies over the past 10 years and great remakes. And he's like, most movies are lackluster these days. Movies are hard to make. Remakes are no different. Saying that movies are hard to make is a cop-out. <laughs> and is the most laughable thing. I'm just very passionate about this kind of stuff. And fucking dumbasses. You shouldn't fuck <laughs> you shouldn't fuck dumbasses. That could be bad for your health. <laughs> yeah. Can make you dumb.